This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, January 9th. I'm Virginia Allen. Tensions are growing, and they're growing rapidly in the Middle East. The conflict is reaching outside of Israel and the conflict between Israel and Hamas and is spilling over now into Lebanon, Iran, and the Red Sea. So what do we know about these growing tensions, and who are the key players? Heritage Foundation Vice President of the Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, Victoria Coates, is joining us on the show to explain. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. The Heritage Foundation is the most effective conservative policy organization in the country. Every semester, our interns are a vital part of that mission. We pay competitively, we develop talent, and we give our interns access to some of the sharpest minds in the country. We're going on offense, so join us. To learn more about the Young Leaders Program here at the Heritage Foundation, please go to heritage.org intern. Heritage Foundation Vice President of the Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, Victoria Coates, joins us now. Victoria, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Virginia. Well, Victoria, tensions appear to be growing, increasing in the Middle East. And recently, we've been hearing a lot about the Houthis. They have been firing missiles um, and launching attacks at ships, specifically in the Red Sea, since the attack that Hamas carried out on Israel on October 7th. First, can you explain who the Houthis are and why they are launching these attacks in the Red Sea? It's an excellent question. Uh, And because I think most Americans think of Yemen as the place Chandler Bing visited, and I believe season four of Friends, to get away from Janice. Uh, and so that they can be for, forgiven for thinking Yemen is pretty remote, and it is. It's, sure. It's down on the sort of southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula, right at the mouth of the Red Sea, which then goes up uh, to the Suez Canal, which is the conduit to Europe. So you get a large percentage of the world's Uh, shipping goes through this, including Mm -hmm. very significant percentages of both food and energy. So this is a a vital economic conduit. And if if our listeners think back uh, about two and a half years to when that container ship went sideways in the Suez Canal and everything got snarled for months, Mm -hmm. uh, that's why this is such an, an important strategic location, even though it is distant from the United States. So the Houthi are a rebel military group in Yemen who have toppled the uh, the recognized government of Yemen in the capital of Sana'a, and they are the de facto rulers now of most most of the country. And they are a Shiite Islamic uh, extremist group. And as Shiites have been basically co-opted by uh, the Iranian regime as proxies. So where as Saudi Arabia and UAE intervened on the side of the recognized government of Yemen, which may not have been perfect, but was a functioning government, and, you know, U.S. Uh, ships uh, made port calls uh, there and, and, and so on. But uh, they were on that side and the Iranians came in on the Houthi side. And unfortunately, uh, international condemnation did not come down on the Iranians for supporting the violent extremist Houthi, but rather on the Saudis and Emiratis and to some extent the United States, which was assisting in counterterrorism uh, programs with them. And so you know that that's kind of the situation right now. And one of the tools the Iranians have deployed – 
in the years that they've been involved in this is they allow and enable the Houthi to take pot shots with various kinds of projectiles and missiles at commercial ships uh, going through that very narrow uh, neck of, of the Red Sea. And, you know, this has been a nuisance in years past. It's always been a concern. But since the October 7th attacks on Israel, it's become an epidemic. And there have been dozens of attacks. Uh, they're also deploying for the first time ballistic missiles. They're de deploying uh, killer drones. And they're attacking directly, uh, as I said, commercial vessels, but also uh, U.S. warships. And the carrier group we have around the Eisenhower, the, um, right off of, of Yemen, is what's being de deployed to counter these things. Okay. Have they given a reason as to why they're carrying out these attacks on on many, many different ships? Mm -hmm. uh, they just say it's in solidarity with their brothers uh, and fellow Iranian terrorist proxies, Hamas. And so they are simply trying to terrorize uh, the globe by frightening these commercial vessels into taking the much longer route down around the Horn of Africa, which takes another 10 days to two weeks. And you tack mm -hmm. that onto your voyage, both in terms of time, how long it's going to take you to get to your destination, energy costs, crew costs, all of that is going to add to the uh, supply chain problems that this, this will cause. And when it comes to the connection with Iran, is that an open connection or are we just aware of the connection? Because, you know, when you look at at the chatter and all the connections, you, you kind of recognize, okay, you know, they are working together, but they're not open about working together. They're pretty open about it. Okay. Uh, the Iranian so-called ambassador to the, the Houthi is an IRGC, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps member, uh, deployed as a diplomat, which is pretty, pretty rich. The Iranians have warships in the area, and we know these missiles are of Iranian manufacture. Okay. So then what has the U.S. response been, not only against the Houthis, but against Iran if Iran is really the one controlling the puppet? Yeah, there's been no response against the Iranians uh, whatsoever. The, uh, there have been dozens of attacks out of the Houthi overall across the Middle East. Uh, there have been closer to 150 attacks on the part of uh, these various Iranian proxy groups on, on U.S. installations and, and people. And so this is a, you know, a, a dire situation. If we're going to leave our guys there, we're letting them be sitting targets. And the Department of Defense has said that they are not going to take aggressive action against the Houthi or anybody else. They will only retaliate in self-defense if first fired upon, which is, is a very, very weak position uh, to put us in. And in terms of the Houthi, uh, the good news is that, that uh, our Arleigh Burke-class destroyers have proven very adept in shooting these things down. The Lamboon, for example, the Mason, they're all there uh, and, and very, very capable. The bad news is that we have to keep using them. And the math is disastrous for us. It costs the Houthi 100000 maybe to, to send up one of these drones, and it costs us millions of dollars to shoot it down. And we do that at, at on their schedule, not on ours. So, yeah. it's 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 very bad math for us. Uh, and you know the the supply chain issues are, are going to make it even more expensive. Okay, just so much to unpack here. And when you look at the broader perspective of what's happening, there's been over a hundred attacks on uh, U.S. interest forces in the Middle East, not just in the Red Sea, but bases, so on and so forth. Um, so talk a little bit broader about, you know, U.S. response to all of these multiple attacks and 
are there additional players besides the Houthis in Iran who are that we know of who are behind these attacks? Uh, and what is the American response uh, outside of outside of what you said is really minimal for what's happening in the Red Sea? Yeah, the 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 big the big player obviously is Hamas, the uh, ter- Palestinian terrorist group out of Gaza that perpetuated the October seventh attacks that brought on this most recent wave of violence, and they are like the Houthi Iranian proxies, largely, uh, if not exclusively, funded and supplied by the Iranians. Uh, And there's every reason to believe that through their Hezbollah brothers, which is the third H-starting Iranian-sponsored terrorist group in the region, Hezbollah up north in Lebanon, that, that the October 7th attacks were plotted in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, under the auspices of the Iranian regime. Apparently, the Iranian foreign minister was there. Again, they're mixing up their diplomatic and military activities and under the auspices of Hezbollah. So again, Hamas doesn't have the capability to do this on their own. They needed the help from Hezbollah. They needed the help ultimately from Iran in terms of equipment and intelligence and so on. So you have all of those groups. And then adding to the mayhem, we have a series of Shiite uh, militias in Iraq which sprung up around the time that ISIS uh, broke out of sort of central Iraq and, and Syria and created such havoc and, and chaos in 2015 timeframe. And the uh, Obama administration had withdrawn U.S. troops from Iraq prior to that. So we were caught really flat-footed. And these Shiite militia, because uh, the ISIS folk are Sunni, it, developed as a, a, a sort of counterforce to ISIS. And as the U.S. went back into Iraq to fight, also fight ISIS, the Obama administration found common cause with a lot of these militias, which became loosely integrated into the Iraqi army, which we largely fund and continue to do, th- do so through security support. But once ISIS was largely defeated, the Shiite militias uh, turned on the United States because ultimately they are the, the proxies of Iran. So the Iranians were fine when we were helping them kill ISIS, but the minute ISIS was in that incarnation dead, uh, they turned on us and started attacking U.S. troops and mm-hmm. installations. And that's what the Iranians are using now to attack the Americans in both Iraq and Syria. Okay. So with Iran so much at the forefront of driving so much of the conflict, what what is in in your mind the logic behind not really going after Iran? And there, of course, I guess can be an argument made that you know, the American people have, have seen so much conflict in the Middle East, maybe don't have the stomach for another full-out war in the Middle East. Um, but what's your thoughts on why the Biden administration has not really hit Iran where it hurts? Yeah, no, it's 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 in some ways counterintuitive. But with the Iranians, if you want to stop them from doing this kind of aggressive behavior, treat them like a bully. That's essentially what they are when they see an opportunity and they think their aggression is going to go on. Un, uh, with no response, mm-hmm. they're going to they're going to keep trying. Uh, but when you do something strong but not escalatory, it was like the the takeout of Qasem Soleimani uh, four years ago. You know that that is a kind of action that says to them, "We can reach out and touch you, whoever you are, anytime, and you are not above uh, you know above touching." And you know we're going to do something targeted. Yes, it's you know a couple of people in that he was the principal, obviously. 
Uh, but it's really going to degrade your capability to continue on the kind of behavior we would like you to stop. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't do that, as I said, it's sort of counterintuitive. You are actually inviting them to do more and more, and eventually they're going to either misshoot, miscalculate, or have a successful, what they would consider to be a successful strike against an American target, and that has a much greater possibility of dragging us into a conflict that every reasonable person would want to avoid. Then there's, there's another side to that coin, which is that the Biden administration, like the Obama administration before them, considers Iran a rational actor and a potential partner for uh, various types of international negotiations. And so you have both the Obama-era nuclear deal, which they have been desperate to get back into for almost three years now. They've been uh, eagerly trying to t coax the Iranians to recomply with that. Uh, we've had the offset take place. The Iranians are now enriching uranium to 60 percent. They're on the on the border of weapons grade, all of this took place under under the Biden administration. So they're hopeful, though, that they think that they can get back into that deal. And then uh, the president campaigned on ending the war in Yemen between the Houthi and the, the legitimate government. And they thought that, that as part of the Israel-Saudi deal they were working on over the summer, they might be pretty close to a Saudi uh, Houthi deal, which they considered to be a great diplomatic triumph. And unfortunately, uh, you know, that's pretty much on ice now, but they still think it's possible. And so that's why, for example, they took the Houthi off the foreign terrorist organization list some three years ago, and it's why they're not hitting them now, because they want to get to that deal. Okay. This is fascinating. Thank you, Victoria. I want to switch gears a little bit um, and just talk about Lebanon. So we've been hearing a lot just in the past really three days all of a sudden about Lebanon. Um, we've begun to see really this kind of conflict spill over uh, outside of Israel and Gaza over the weekend. Lebanon's Iran-backed Hezbollah group fired rockets into Israel. Israel fired back. They say they struck a terrorist cell. On Monday, we learned that um, an Israeli airstrike in southern Lebanon uh, killed a top Hezbollah commander. Why is Lebanon getting involved in this conflict between uh, Israel and Hamas? Well, important to realize Lebanon, as you know, we think about it as a, as a nation state, really does not exist at this point. The government is completely dysfunctional. They haven't had a, a president in, in some years. The economy is in just a free fall. And Hezbollah is the most powerful uh, most powerful political force and military force in the country. So essentially, Lebanon is functioning now as a satellite of Iran. So that's why they they are now getting involved. They were involved in, started in planning the October 7th attacks, as I said, uh, and a lot of the Hamas senior people, they're also being picked off by the Israelis in Lebanon. But the biggest problem with Hezbollah is over the last really five years, the Iranians have packed Lebanon with about 150,000 uh, missiles, about 100,000 of which I believe are fitted to be precision-guided missiles. One of the reasons it seems that so many in the Middle East are bad shots and, you know, you get these barrages of rockets and that nothing seems to be really struck is because they don't have that precision guidance. But 100,000 of the Hezbollah rockets do have that. And so that is a potential huge problem for Israel, because if you set up a swarm of those things, you could potentially overwhelm their missile defenses. And so that's what that's what they're really concerned about. That's what has not happened yet uh, out of Hezbollah. Uh, but 
you know, that's always been an option for the Iranians if they really wanted uh, to to distract and degrade Israel's ability to get after Hamas and Gaza, they could open that second front. And is that something that the U.S. can and should help to prevent? Are there resources that we can give to Israel? Or do you think maybe that's not the place of America? No, no. I think I think there are a number of things we could be doing. Uh, you know, for starters, the House passed, you know, rapidly that $13 billion standalone resupply for Israel uh, at the end of last year. That was an absolutely appropriate act. They simply pulled it out of the president's larger uh, emergency supplemental, the difference being that they were actually going to pay for it through normal budgeting process rather than, you know, add to the debt, which is what the emergency moniker does. It means you don't have to pay for it. You can just print more money. So that passed the House. Every single Senate Democrat, including, for example, Senator Fetterman, Senator Senator Schumer, who were vocally very pro-Israel, but when it came down to it, they stopped that bill from coming to the Senate floor and going to the president's desk, which was all right, because the president said he would veto it. Uh, that's how they actually feel about aid to Israel. So that would be the first thing you could do is pass that supplemental. The other, uh, you know, we had a lot of options until recently. We had the Ford Carrier Group and the Eastern Med, uh, which is our most capable, largest, newest aircraft carrier. And you could do a lot uh, off of that with the Hornets. You could do some targeted, again, not massive, not escalatory, but very targeted strikes on Hezbollah uh apparatus in Lebanon, again, to demonstrate we can reach out and touch you, we can degrade your abilities, how expensive do you want this to be, how painful do you want this to be for you? Mm -hmm. And I think if that was handled properly, that would push them back. Uh, But the Ford has departed uh, for it. It had to come back to Norfolk to get uh, maintenance. Hmm. So we no longer have that capability. Okay. Looking at the current situation, all these moving factors, of course, we have the recent situation in Iran between um, Sunni and Shiite Muslims, where there was uh, a really tragic attack that uh, 100 people, um, over 100 people were killed. It was the most deadly attack in Iran since 1979 Islamic Revolution. All of these moving factors, all of these tensions growing Victoria, are are we headed for an all-out war in the Middle East, or are we kind of already there? Well, you know, the situation in Iran, I mean, I would never call something like that encouraging, but it is a reminder that Iran is not 100 feet high, nor is it impenetrably strong. There are severe divisions inside the country, both in terms of, of ethnic uh, differences, you know, there are women's issues, there are environmental issues, there are money issues. So there's a lot of of trouble. And in that particular case, the attack was on the uh, gravesite of Qasem Soleimani Mm -hmm. uh, on the anniversary of his death when there were a bunch of of so-called pilgrims there to pay homage to to him. Uh, And that those were, of course, all Shiite representatives of the Iranian regime. And they were attacked by ISIS, uh, which is, of course, Sunni. So ISIS now back from the grave in Iraq uh, is flexing its muscles in Iran. And, you know, the important thing there is not to fall into the trap we fell into in Iraq when we partnered with the Shiite militias to fight ISIS. Just because ISIS is bombing the Shiite in, in Iran does not make them our friends by any stretch of the imagination. ISIS is still very, very savage and bad and problematic. Uh, So I don't think the United States can be looking for any friends here uh, in this particular alphabet suit. Yeah. 
Where do you see this escalation ending? Well, you know, a lot of that is going to have to do with what what the Americans decide to do. You know, in a way, it is easier for the region if the United States is unambiguous in its stance and if we were unambiguously supportive of Israel and, you know, basically told our partners and allies in the region, look, look, this is the way it's going to be and we're going to get after this. I mean, the dirty little secret for a lot of the, say, Gulf monarchies, for example, is they don't like the Palestinians either. They have done none of the things that they might have done 50 years ago in terms of trying to supply and help and even participate in a war beside the Palestinians. Uh, They have been remarkably quiet. There hasn't been any influx of of supplies or material, and uh, there has not been overtly anti-Israel action. Uh, I would have opposed the UN resolution that was adopted recently written by the UAE, but for the standards of that sort of thing, it was remarkably muted. So, you know, it's it's a moment when I think American clarity could be very helpful in reducing tensions, getting the conflict with uh, Gaza actually resolved. Not not kind of dragging it out. Uh, hopefully, getting some of the hostages home uh, as much as much as is humanly possible, and and restoring some kind of order. But unfortunately, we're sending a lot of very mixed messages right now, which which has the perhaps unintended consequence of creating confusion and unfortunately opening the door to more strife. Hmm. Um, quickly, Victoria, before we let you go, you mentioned the hostages. Do we have any update on the about 100 hostages that are still in Gaza where negotiations stand? Yeah, unfortunately, they seem to be pretty much stalled and at a stalemate. You know, the Qataris have continued to play a mediating role there. I know that's highly controversial. It is you know, one avenue to try to resolve this situation. Uh, it appears that the remaining uh, Hamas leadership who are dug in in various facilities in, in Gaza are basically surrounding themselves with the hostages, using them as human shields uh, in order to protect themselves from, from target. And, you know, that is a situation they are unlikely to give up at this point. I don't know what could be worth it to them. Uh, they don't particularly care about humanitarian aid unless they can co-opt it and, you know, repurpose it. So, you know, the fact that the people of Gaza are suffering is for them acceptable damage, and they're going to probably hang on to the hostages as long as they can at this point. Mm. Victoria Coates of the Heritage Foundation. Victoria, thank you for your time. Thank you, Virginia. Please keep them in your prayers. Absolutely. And want to encourage all of our listeners to check out the work of Victoria Coates at the Heritage Foundation website. That's heritage.org. But with that, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us here at the Daily Signal podcast. If you have not had the chance, make sure that you check out our evening show right here in this exact same podcast feed. Every weekday, we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines that you need to know to stay informed on what's happening here in America and across the world. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you like to listen to your podcast. And take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review that helps us to really keep spreading the word to new listeners. Thanks again for being with us today. Have a great Tuesday. We'll see you right back here this evening for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.